So you guys, you guys have, uh, you, when did you do this? You moved your studio to a part of San Francisco that I don't think I, I had been to more than two or three times in the 20 years that I lived there. Yeah, they're, they're trying to keep your kind out. I said there has to be a space so odd that only we want it. <laughs> and no new startup will be in competition with us for it. And we found this space. And the condition of this space is that we operate an art gallery. An art gallery, in the, like, like, like a storefront art gallery. Yes, we have a legit art gallery. You've been doing shows. We have been doing shows. We just opened our second show with uh, Aaron Draplin of Draplin Design Company. And wow, we had 500 people through the doors. Holy cow. Well, he's amazing. Yeah, and he's such a good guy. Like, I met him at Adobe Max last year for the first time, very briefly. And he, I mean, he's a hero. I didn't realize what, how huge he was in the design community. Uh, and then to see him interact with uh, his admirers was just amazing. He's so humble and he's so great and so funny. And he's just a fantastic, like I love meeting people whose talent far uh, exceeds their ego. Mm. And, yeah. and he's really can be, um, can be rare in our industry. Yeah. And, t and so it was fantastic to have all these people come through and he put all, all this stuff on the wall and had his merch table and people were out like in the alley. And it's, it's always great to throw a party that people are lining up to get into. And so that's real neat. Yeah, that's nice. No, there's a, um, I've seen a couple videos and I'll, and I'll find the links to them. Um, and, uh, and, and it's just showing him and his process. Right. Where yeah. he just literally like a camera over his shoulder as he's sketching in his in his notebook and as he's moving stuff around in Illustrator and um, ah, just so inspiring. It's so un you're, you're right. Just so unpretentious. He's just like, oh, let's try this and yeah. push this. Oh, hey, you know what that reminds me of? It's just it's it's great to see that really demystifying what people think of when they think of like a designer going away into their studio and coming back with a work of brilliance. Right. Um, where he is just. Um, Oh, let's try triangles now, you know. Yeah. Kind of stuff. And and he talked about it. He said it's just it's a trade. It's just a trade. And um and it was fantastic because it, it turned out that some of uh some of my friends came by, old friends of mine, including uh, a fantastic furniture designer friend of mine, the guy who made our cardboard conference table that we've had forever. Um, and I was able to introduce him to this other, you know, these two great guys who are so talented at what they do and so unassuming and humble. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. Well, cool. I want to, um, I still haven't been over to see your studio. So next time in San Francisco, which will be soon, mm -hmm. I'll come and see you. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, we're really, we, we're giving back to the community. We really take that very seriously to be a part of this neighborhood. And to start having events and welcoming people in and, and, you know, providing some actual, you know, a cultural space because those have been disappearing. And so that's part they, of the deal. They've been disappearing and they've been replaced by, unfortunately, lots of people from our industry, or I, I should say the broader sort of technology industry, that um, probably don't have the same sense of being part of the fabric of a community. I think that's been, you know, kind of right at the core of a lot of the stuff that's been going on in San Francisco and the tension that's been, that's been kind of rising over the past few years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people with no sense of history and, and this neighborhood is all about having a, a sense of history in old San Francisco. I mean, there's a, there's a topless bar that has a historical plaque 
<laughs> a block away from our office saying this is the first place where topless entertainment was performed, you know, the Condor with Carol Dota and, and that's Oh so, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. So that's that's all here. And it's so it's 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 really neat to kind of pull back to uh to old San Francisco while still, you know, while thinking about the future and things like that. So it's a uh, mm, which is your job. Which is my job. About the future. Yeah. So rooted in the past, thinking about the future, eating a lot of really fantastic pizza. <laughs> that sounds great. Did you know I was a history major in college? I did not. I thought it was yeah. journalism or... Yeah, journalism and history dual uh, major. Um, so, yeah, uh, I do feel like studying the past helped me try to invent the future a little bit, I guess. Um, um, but, yeah, I, so I agree with that sentiment. I think that's cool. Nice work. Yeah, so stop by. Mm -hmm. So let me, um, let me change the subject. We, we were chatting a little earlier uh, about this... Our, series of articles in the New York Times Magazine, I guess it was about a couple of weeks ago now, where they, uh, I think they called it the work issue, mm -hmm. uh, just talking a lot and a lot of long stories about what work is like now. Uh, and the one that really caught my attention was this one about um, a project that Google did to try to understand why some teams that worked at Google were successful and others were not. Uh, and they called this Project Aristotle. And it sounded like it was really long, like it went on two or three years or something like that. And, and what they did was looked at uh, the outcomes of, I think, 180 different teams, lots and lots of data, and much to their chagrin, found really no patterns in the data. And, you know, sort of full disclosure, about 10 years ago, I guess now, I worked at Google. Wow. A whole decade. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was about 10 years ago now. Uh, I worked there for about two and a half years, and I was involved in a tremendous amount of recruiting and hiring because we were growing like crazy. When I got to Google, uh, I think it was in 2005, there was, uh, I was employee number 4,500. And when I left Google two and a half years later, there were like 18 or 19,000 employees. And um, that rate of growth was just outrageous. And so much of the recruiting and interviewing and hiring that we did was very, very data-driven. You've probably heard about the sort of uh, Mensa scores where they run people through with their, their, um, their GPAs from school, their school records, their SAT scores, their, all that kind of stuff. But through all of this data that they have on all their employees and, and putting them all together in teams, they couldn't come up with equivalent sort of score for different teams that matched to outcomes. Uh, and I found that fascinating. And they dug into it. And turns out they had to go to a much more sort of subjective set of scientific research, looking at much more uh, the social sciences and psychology to find that the, the one thing that they did find that led to positive outcomes with teams was this idea of a clear articulation of the group norms. Mm -hmm. That is kind of, uh, I think, a, a euphemism for the culture of a team or the 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 way just the way things run and this sort of set of shared assumptions and uh, about how the team behaves and things like that and the, the clearer that the team could articulate their group more norms the more successful they tended to be and two norms in particular that came out of this that tended to be at the top of the list of teams that have articulated their norms the distribution of conversation so the distribution of conversation being equal across all the members of the teams, which is kind of a fancy way to say that in a meeting, everybody felt 
an equal opportunity to speak up and did so. And the second one, which I found a little surprising considering a lot of my interactions at Google, <laughs> was high social sensitivity. That is, uh, the teams were skilled or the members of the teams were skilled at intuiting how others felt based on things like tone of voice, expressions, nonverbal cues, things like that. And that went into creating this space of psychological safety. And that, man, that has been my experience with every team that I've worked in. The safer people feel and, and the more they trust each other, the better they perform and the better the product is as a result. So to sort of tie this all back into talking about design. We make better products when we feel safe with the people we work yeah. with. And I, I loved this piece because the, the idea that Google, I mean, Google's fantastic at engineering problems. At Google stumbles when they try to treat human issues as engineering problems. And the fact that they had to take this, this extended tour uh, uh, and project to come around to know what good managers know. There's this great quote in the article that I pulled out. It says, the kinds of people who work at Google are often the ones who became software engineers because they wanted to avoid talking about feelings in the first place. Yeah. Which is a gross generalization, and yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a stereotype of engineers. But at the same time, there, there seems to be some uh, correlation yeah, I mean, that can be very true of designers as well, because I think, you, you know, you and I are probably very, very different from the, the type of designer who wants to sit at a 90-inch monitor and lay things out all day and, and be a graphic designer. That's, that's also a stereotype of designers. And when we're hiring designers, that's something we have to look for, because sometimes you'll find somebody whose work is fantastic, but they can't interact with people. And that is a huge part of our work, not just internally collaborating together, but working with our clients. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so tell me about that. You've probably seen dozens and dozens, hundreds of different teams embed for at, at various levels of embedded with them during the projects that you do. How does that map to, to this? Well, I think the, the thing about our work is that often the greatest, you know, people hire us to do uh, some sort of specific design project, but the greatest uh, thing that we bring to them, uh, the greatest value we bring is that we facilitate that psychological safety. Because why do they have to hire uh, expertise outside their organizations? Because they can't get something done inside their organization. And it doesn't have to do with skill necessarily. It doesn't have to do with knowledge. It has to do with creating that environment where people can be honest with one another because that's what comes out of psychological safety that I think the article, uh, the New York Times article hinted at but didn't get to directly is that uh, it's shocking when you step back, especially when you look at organization after organization as we do in client services the degree to which people are unable to be honest with one another and dishonesty. And I don't mean they're lying. I just mean they're not actually being frank and candid and telling the truth. Right. right. Honesty is the greatest way to get efficiency because people are always talking about how do we make better products faster? And the answer is be honest with yourselves and your teams about, you know, what your customers need, what your capabilities are, what your capacity is, what your business model is. But because people fear 
like deeply in this really, really deep way. We confront this all the time. People fear speaking openly and honestly in front of one another. They'll go along in these projects in this this false reality. And this happens this happens in every level and every age of organization. It happens in startups because they're like, yay, we just got funding and we just did this pitch and this is our story. And we can't admit anything about our story is wrong right now because, you know, this this hype is keeping us going while we're figuring this out. And if you come along and you say, oh, but our our assumptions are deeply flawed. Like you can't come out and say that because you just you're setting off and and they have to be right, at least for now. And in larger organizations, it, a lot of times it comes down to power and authority. Like I've talked to people uh, who said they've gotten they've actually gotten fired for asking questions, like asking real questions, because, um, you know, that can really if the person in charge says things are a certain way, questioning the way things are is questioning the authority of that person. And that's why people don't want to do research. I mean, the, people always come up like I, I do a lot of work with people around uh, design research and the, you know, the, the common excuses for not doing research are that um, it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. But the actual reason is that uh, people are afraid of what they might find out. Interesting that it, that it'll reveal these unspoken truths that they've been that they know about and uh, have been hiding. Yeah, and then they come up with reasons like, "Oh, we don't have time to do research," which is ridiculous. Like, you don't have time to to find out if your assumptions are right before you invest a lot of time and money. And so that's right, directly sure. connected to this idea of psychological safety. And so what happens is we come in from the outside with our design team. And we convene these meetings and work sessions. And because we're there and because we can say whatever we want, essentially, uh, we create a space in which people are safe to ask questions because we're asking questions. And because we're asking questions and we're like, you're paying us, so you have to give us the honest answer or you're setting fire to your money, people can speak freely. And our hope is that and what we strive to do is instill this ethos and these supporting processes to allow people to continue to speak honestly in front of one another because we've set up this framework that allows them to have those discussions. And so a desi our design work won't succeed past the time we leave unless we're successful in changing how organizations work with one another internally. So they hire a design agency and they assume they're buying design and instead they get couples therapy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like at scale. <laughs> that's great. Um, but it's true, right? Like that's, uh, well, that was always one of my frustrations back in the days when I was consulting uh, with Adaptive Path was the difficulty to see the work that we were signed on to do, see the light of day in a way that, that, in any way resembled the work we had done, right? Right. Like that. So it's interesting that you take this sort of uh, psychological approach to it, this, this really, honestly, like therapeutic approach to say, like, this is a safe space and you can, you can talk about it and, and probably being successful because you are an outsider in that space. Exactly. And it's funny because this is something that designers who work in, in agencies and client services uh, complain about a lot. And it's a reason that they give for moving from the client services side to the product side is, oh, by the time the work 
launches, it's nothing like what we designed. And I think the reason for that is that they construed the work, like what we were talking about earlier, as sitting at a computer and designing something beautiful and solving the problem and then handing it over and not doing the organizational work. Like if you're a designer and you don't think that that work is part of the job, then your work won't last. Oh, no, that's true. I've, I've, uh, I was having a conversation with um, Alex Castanaro, who, whose name I probably just butchered, on, and I apologize. He's head of design over at Dropbox. And, um, and that was one of his, that's one of his big things is, uh, cause he works with very young designers, typically first job, um, uh, in the industry, uh, and cultivating them to say that what you call politics are actually just more inputs into the design you need to do. And the better inputs that you can get, the better the design will be. And the more likely it'll be successful inside the organization and outside the organization. And I found that absolutely fascinating because earlier in my career, I would bristle against what I called politics, which is this, this, all this creative energy going into God, just convincing people to let me do my job. When in fact, that is often the major, majority of the job is being able to articulate why it is you think your ideas are the way forward. Exactly. And, and the thing that I talk about a lot uh, when I'm doing, you know, speaking and teaching and training, all this stuff, when I, whenever I have a chance to talk to anybody who might be in a position in an organization to change how they work, I talk uh, about the, um, the fact that you have to, you know, embrace this and confront it. And when you think about a design problem, you know, I always think about it like, why do so many badly designed systems and products get out into the world? Like, this is the most fascinating question to me because you see things all the time and you're like, that is poorly designed. But when you think about the, the amount of human knowledge we have about designing things well, like we know, we know what it is for something to be well designed. And, and yet so many terrible things get out there that are either products people don't need or products people need that are really hard to use or things that are just ugly. And they happen because not because designers didn't know how to design, but because an organization didn't know how to make good decisions because a design project is really just a series of decisions. Right. Right. And and that's the hard part. That's actually the problem. The problem is not like designing something well is really, really straightforward. I won't say it's totally easy because there are systems that are just complex and challenging to design, but it's very straightforward. But, but getting an organization to make all of the right decisions in order to have that design come to life, that's the hard part of the problem. And that has to do with how individual people interact with one another. And that's so fascinating that Google tried to find a pattern. They tried to find this engineering solution, this key that would unlock, okay, we put this one process in place and then all humans can speak honestly with one another and work towards, you know, their shared goal. Right. Right. And it abs <laughs> and it absolutely comes down to individual humans in a room together able to make a series of decisions that enable good design to get out into the world and then persist. And that is totally a, a problem like with, with clients. Like we, we'll work with clients and have one project sound exactly like another one. And the organizations might even be very similar organizations in the same business, uh, you know, the same size organization. 
But what it takes to get good design work done will vary. So let's talk about it really tactically, this, this idea of psychological safety. Um, because it's not just that you're an outsider and they've hired you and brought you in and it's all special. You are doing something in the room that creates a sense of safety that allows people to say what's on their minds. And so what are those things? I know I have worked really hard with a lot of the teams that I've worked on just uh, at the basic level to humanize one another so that, so that we're not sitting there as our roles, but we're sitting there as ourselves, right? So I don't look across the table and see engineer. I look across the table and I see a person I know uh, and I know something about them. So one of the things that we always do, um, like when we were building Typekit, we would have these twice yearly. So we were about half of, a, of the team was distributed. Twice a year, everybody would get together. There would always be new, peop new people. And we would do this thing in this, you know, quote unquote, offsite that we would have where everybody got to get up and give a five minute keynote presentation on something that they were passionate about outside of what their job is. And so people, like one guy was super into advent calendars and gave this amazing five minute <laughs> presentation on look at all these like every year he like tries to outdo the year before and 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 you're like holy cow this, this you know um another guy just deep deeply into pizza and you know and on and on and on it goes like that um and it was amazing right because here are people that sometimes are very shy or sometimes are not uh, don't have the same social dynamic as other people on the team they're sharing something they're passionate about we all get to know one another lots of laughter in the room very humanizing um and that alone i think s loosens the tension around the table when we're making product decisions yeah that that's fantastic because uh, I think w what happens is we like to talk as designers a lot about empathy and about, oh, we have to have empathy for our customers. We have to have empathy for our users. And we never talk about having empathy for our teammates. Like, no one ever talks about that, but that is absolutely a really good necessary. Yep. Yep. And that's yep. really hard because, you know, people talk about collaboration all the time. And they said, okay, we're going to collaborate. And people can work alongside one another for decades and never truly collaborate because they don't they don't actually have a shared purpose they don't see each other as people and so an exercise like that or what we do uh we start off you know with a series of individual interviews with with various members of the team where they can speak freely to us and then we can use what we've learned to help facilitate group discussions and mm -hmm. and we know them as people and then we can, you know, in the way we, we uh, facilitate discussions and talk about goals and, and ask questions and model, a lot of what we do is just modeling that kind of communication in front of a team. And that's something that managers can really do is, you know, and this is something we do at Mule. We talk a lot about making mistakes and we tell the client that, you know, we're going to make mistakes and it's fine and we're going to move on. There's not this sense of, oh, I've, if I demonstrate weakness in front of, of other people, that means I'm a bad person and not a valuable member of the team. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's one of the things, uh, as I've gotten sort of later in my career here, very comfortable with this confidence in not knowing things and being very comfortable expressing that. And I think that... Um, that also eases the tension around the table to where somebody who is ostensibly in charge says, uh, and, and, and a question comes at me and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have no idea. How would we figure that out? You know, as opposed to that always having an answer and always trying to, 
explain my way through it. I think that's just another sort of uh, uh, way of approaching it. One, one of the other things that I've found works really well is that you can teach people to give good feedback and you can model that as well. Um, and so, especially when we're talking about design, so I would run these product reviews, we called them, and anybody could present what they were working on. And it would range from everything from the creative director of the company showing a new direction for some of the, the, the user interface to an engineer um, maybe presenting a new URL structure or something, but we would always treat it the same way. The first thing we would do is set up a rule, a set of rules, right? Are, is this going to be a conversation where we are brainstorming and trying to be more sort of get a diversity of ideas out? Or is this more trying to drive towards consensus? And you just ask the person, what do you need? Do you need more ideas? Do you need more material to go use to, to make more decisions? and to do your work or do we need to drive home and, and get to a, to a point where, where we are, uh, making a decision that's going to be final. And that like helps focus the feedback in a way that I think, again, always trying to relieve the tension. The other thing we would do is, is again, try to try to explain to people the right way to give feedback. So feedback is not opinions saying like, I don't like that color. I don't like that blue that's not good feedback, right? That doesn't, that doesn't drive the conversation any further. That just turns into a bunch of people laying out their opinions, uh, and then argue, either arguing or about it, or, or God forbid saying like, let's go test it. <laughs> uh, you know? So instead of an opinion, I don't like that blue, maybe ask uh, a question more like, why did you choose blue there? Mm -hmm. And, and hear what somebody is is, uh, what the thought process was and talk about that as opposed to the, to the solution that's in front of you, or even better is color important here. Uh, is this something that we should be focused on or is there some deeper thing that we're trying to solve? And, and I think that's part of like design leadership, which you do as a, as, as the sort of the agency that's been brought in and is leading the project, uh, or, or what I would do with it, with a team that, that I'm, uh, sort of driving forward to, to launch some new product, part of the leadership is is modeling how we should communicate to each other, what makes for good feedback, what the cultural norms are around the table, right? Yeah, exactly, and and that's part of design. And I think if it, the we have to keep bringing this back into the conversation to say that the way you communicate about design decisions and about feedback is an inherent part of the work. It's not extra. And just in the same way that you have to establish requirements before you go off and design a product, you have to lay down those those norms, those rules, those guidelines for, for these interactions because they're not normal conversations. And I think there's a sense that, well, if our team has good rapport, we don't have to talk explicitly about our communication. And somehow it seems like if you have to uh, lay those ground rules down at the beginning of a work session that you've failed as a team or as a culture. But collaboration is really, it's an unnatural way of interacting with other people. And the more explicit you are about it, you can, and you can do it very quickly. Like people always say like, oh, we don't want bureaucracy. We don't want too much process. But just taking that, that two minutes to say, as you were saying, like, what's the goal here? What's the goal of the feedback? What does the designer need? What does the team need? Uh, what are we here to do today? People just like dive into it. Like everybody talks about we have too many meetings. And I think so often 
no one takes that step of saying, what's the goal? What's the desired outcome for us spending this time together? And if you take just a couple minutes to be explicit, then everybody knows, because I think one of, the, one of the things that undermines that sense of psychological safety that's so important to functional teams is not knowing what it means to succeed in that group setting, right? Not knowing how you can be a good participant. And so people just fall back on, oh, well, I think I'm good if I just agree with the person in charge. Or I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being helpful if I, you know, just like tear apart this design, something like that. So if you don't say, here's how your participation can be useful in this interaction, if you don't say that explicitly, people are just going to guess. And nobody's trained on this. Like, no. all of these things always get dismissed as soft skills. Right, right. <laughs> but, and I hate, I hate all dichotomies, but the soft skills, hard skills one is, drives me nuts in particular because it, it's all about, well, what skills do you need to accomplish the goal that you're, you're here to accomplish? You know, like who cares how good your craftsmanship is if it doesn't actually meet some business goal? Right, exactly. The other thing, you, you mentioned meetings. We could talk a little bit about meetings because I have... <laughs> Do you have feelings? Uh, uh, well, I have um, a really weird position on meetings in that I think they're incredibly important and all of them are terrible. So I think that doesn't that, sound weird to me, actually. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the fact that I actually think like uh, I've structured the work of Typekit around meetings for a startup uh, is unusual. It is right. Like people associate meetings with these endless droning, terrible, big corporation things. Right. Like and, and trust me, I have my fair share of those at, yeah. at uh, Adobe. When I worked there. That company is run on Outlook. It's amazing. But I think uh, meetings can be almost choreographed and you have to put a sense of urgency in them and they have to have a script. And, uh, and when they do people, uh, I think really appreciate the time that we spend together and it just feels like a different kind of work that I need to do to do my job. The way I'll give you this, this is all right. Bear with me. This is a little bit of a weird, <laughs> weird analogy, but, uh, this is how I think about meetings. So when I was younger, uh, I think like you, I grew up in Southern California and uh, we had this sort of car wash where it was self-serve and you would like drive your car into the stall and then you would put quarters in the machine mm -hmm. and then the, the hose would start, like water would come out of the hose and you had five minutes to wash your car, right? Uh, yeah. And there was a hose and there was a brush and a dial and you would switch between modes. And so when I was in high school, I would drive my car into this stall and I would put the quarters in and I had five minutes and I would try to wash my entire car before the time ran out and I could never, and I didn't want soap to be on the car. So it was this like mad dash and I would be soaking mm -hmm. wet and exhausted, but I didn't have to spend another dollar <laughs> on my car wash. Right. And that's how I treat meetings. Like we have 30 minutes. We have all this to get through. Come on, let's go. There's no time. Let's do this. It is a, uh, an opportunity to disseminate a tremendous amount of information. And this was how we, we, did, a, we did a morning stand-up at, at Typekit for the entire company. Office manager, salesperson, engineer, designer, literally everybody in the company around a giant table. And we would do it every day. And it was at 10 o'clock, or actually it was at 10.05 because that, for some reason, 
made people be on time. <laughs> if it was at 10 o'clock, we knew they'd always be late. 10.05, everybody was there. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, maybe some weird psychology. I don't understand. Yeah, people are weird. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and we would do this meeting that was literally scripted. There was, and there was a, uh, a text document on the screen that everybody would look at and everybody was dialed in and there was screen sharing and all that. And we would just go through it. And so many people came to tell me how much they enjoyed starting their day with 15, 20 minutes of just like going through everything. What's happening in support? What's happening in ops? What's happening in sales? What's happening in marketing? And we would just go through it and people would have their sentence ready to report in because we don't have any time. We got to get this meeting over with. And 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 that's just and and again, it, I think it felt very egalitarian, and I think it created a lot of trust around the team too. Yeah, that's fantastic because it sounds like you were also enabling uh, something else mentioned in that article that the the speaking. If everyone speaks for a roughly equal amount of time, that engenders trust as well. And I, I absolutely agree with that. And and one of the one of the problems I think you know, of course, we could talk about calendar software again for days probably. But this default sense that a meeting is about a unit of time, not about getting something done, not about an right. outcome, and everything defaults to an hour. You know, you can't have maybe the perfect time for a conversation is seven minutes, and maybe seven minutes gives you just enough time, but not quite enough. And people are always worried, like, oh, are we going to have enough time? And I think the the method you describe, where you want that sense of urgency, where you say, okay, if we... Uh, get the most out of it if we have slightly too little time. We'll actually have enough time, but it will feel like slightly too little and everybody will feel good and energized, not like their life force is draining out of them. That's a fantastic approach. Uh, I have an awful uh, counter story to to offer from you know early in our days as Mule. We were on site with a client. It was a large internet company and we were getting together for some sort of design review, and I forget. We, we had decisions to make. The idea was we had to like make some choices about priorities. And we finished the meeting in about 35 minutes. And, um, and we thought, okay, great. We can, we can leave now. That's fantastic. We accomplished what we were here to do in less time than we had allotted. And then somebody on the team actually said, oh, we have 20 minutes left. We could play Pictionary. <laughs> Our, our jaws dropped like, what? Yeah, I, I can't even. And, and this was part of their, their culture was just, well, it was, it was as though they were in class. It was though they were in elementary school. And they said, well, we've got 20 minutes until lunch and we finished the assignment. So we get to play a game now. Well, I mean, that comes from, you know, probably 18 years of, or rather 12 years of institutional education as well. It's just, you know, what? You you do your work until the bell rings and then you stop right yeah. pencils down. Yeah, and the and the other part of it is the the indi- the incentivizing the individual contribution. And I think a lot of organizations do this while they so they say, you know, their line is we're a collaborative organization, but they only recognize individual effort, which puts people into competition with one another. And this also comes out of our our education. And so it's really it's important, you know, for the team to feel like individual success is tied to team success, and then they'll be a lot more supportive of one another. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 That's, um, well, I agree with all of that for sure. <laughs> so on, uh, I, I think there's something here 
uh, and, and let me take this in a little slightly di different direction. This idea that you can engender this sense of psychological safety, trust, and whatnot in a team, is there a way to sort of turn that into a methodology? And I think there have been attempts at that. Um, I think, uh, uh, for better or worse, or branding or not, holacracy is an attempt to try to do just that. Right. This is this uh, methodology probably seen the coverage of uh, Zappos, Zappos famously yeah. trying to implement this system across the whatever 2000 person organization. But this idea that there there's a way to have meetings that is about everybody contributing, that individual contribution is placed at a at, at the highest bar and using mechanisms to try to facilitate that. I, I haven't heard a lot of great stories about it succeeding, and, and perhaps it, it sort of swings the pendulum way too far in the other direction. But I, do, I, found, I find it super interesting. Yeah, I, I don't buy it because this is one of those cases, like we see this a lot in design, where people, there's a hard problem and in business as well. And people just want a silver bullet, right? In research, they what's the methodology that I use? You know, you, you, you know, Agile is so popular for this reason. Like, okay, we do things agilely and we'll be just be more successful if we follow this process. And I think this is, this is the same thing where it lets you off the hook because I think, honestly, one of the things that brings teams together the best is having a clear goal. And it, it astounds me how often we go into organizations and there's not a sense of here's what our mission or our business goal or our business model is. And we've clarified it and everybody knows. Because I think if everybody knows where the team is going, it really helps them suss out how they can be a successful part of that team. And But I think those can be very hard conversations for an organization to have. So instead of saying, okay, here's what we're about as an organization, here's our business model, here's our goal, they'll say, well, here's our process. Let's really succeed at the process. And you can succeed at the process and fail at the business. Yeah, no, all right. I, I totally agree. I mean, geez, the first five years of Adaptive Path were us going to clients and they say, we want some usability testing. And we yeah. would do the usability testing and we'd come back and say, the results are your business model is wrong. <laughs> and they would be like, you, you did the test wrong. Like, that's not what we were, that's not what we hired yeah. you for. I'm like, nobody wants this product and they're not going to pay the way you want them to pay. Like, that's what we found. Yeah. And um, they, they right. found all the buttons. That was fine. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah. But let me, I mean, let me push back on that a little bit. C can you separate? Can you say like, all right, there is, there is uh, clearly a need at a very high strategic level for, for clear communication and articulation of a, of a vision, of a, of a set of milestones, of a set of business goals, a strategy. All of that is a function of the leadership of the organization. Mm -hmm. But can you also then actually put some structure on teams, give them this, the, a framework to work inside of that uh, enables this kind of the, the, all the stuff that we've been talking about around safety. I, I, I think there's something to it. I think uh, you're exactly right that they get mixed up and one with the, the other is, is, is a, can be a disaster. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know. I mean, I also now in my new job with, with, the, with the, um, investing and, and, and all of that, I'm involved in a number of board meetings, and there is a structure to those 
mm-hmm. right? Like there, and, and it's called Robert's Rules of Order, and oh, it's yeah. 150 years old. And if you want to propose something officially, you you move that something happens, and then you somebody seconds you, and then you say all in favor. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, uh, all opposed, so moved, and and we move on. Right. And there's a methodology for structuring a meeting that just honestly keeps things in order. So. So I wonder, is uh, holacracy a sort of postmodern version of Robert's Rules of Order in a way to allow individual contribution to flourish and, and all of that? I'll say maybe, but it, it mm. sounds like from, from what Google found and, and other things that you know, other people working with teams have found is that, you know, they said that teams that function well didn't necessarily all share the same rituals or the same norms. They just had this mutual respect for one another and they had this sense of safety. And so what I'll say about uh, holacracy or Robert's rules of order is, and, and what you were saying, what you did at, um, at Typekit, having, a, an exp- having an explicit structure, having an explicit protocol is what matters. It doesn't matter. I think you could run your morning stand up according to Robert's rules of order and it would be fantastic. So so that's yeah. that's the issue is that um it comes down to how individuals act, right? It all comes down to the golden rule, don't be a dick. And and it's it's whatever gets you there and it'll be different for different teams. And what I worry about is is an organization looks at another organization and they're like, "Oh, yeah, holacracy." And and instead of looking at what they need to do within their own organization, they just borrow whatever trendy methodology is out there. Um, and so I think it could help in the same way that, right, there are like 10,000 different diet and exercise programs out there. And it's right, like, right. whichever one gets you to eat more vegetables and get off the sofa is great. And it's and no one is better than any other one. And right. and so that's that's my my feeling about any anything like that. But but what happens so often is it, it just becomes this faddish thing where they're like, oh, we're, we're doing the holacracy now. And what happens is it's like if people are following the rules of the methodology to the letter but not the spirit, it gets about doing that rather than about getting to the heart of the matter. That's a really good point. As you said, we see the same thing in research and design methodologies, all of that kind of stuff. Lean startup can be exactly the same, right? Yeah. When I got to Adobe, I would sit down with many teams and they're like, nope, we got it covered. We use personas. So we know. What, <laughs> you know. I'm like, you're just yeah. writing stories that you want yeah. to be true. Like, it's, you know. So, exactly. Uh, I, yeah. I am so against all dogma. Uh, so you brought up Adobe and Adobe is so interesting to me. And I don't know if you have an answer to this question, having been inside, but my, I, I've had various um, interactions just with Adobe as me as an individual dealing with Adobe as an organization. And the bureaucracy operates at a, a, like a mythological level. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. And, oh, abso- oh, absolutely. For and the, sure. the thing that's so interesting to me is that at one point, Adobe was a collection of humans interacting with other humans. And then Adobe became a collection of processes, giant processes operating with other processes. And I would love anything that, that pointed to the inflection point at which a group of people, <laughs> a group of people becomes a, 
a set of processes that interact with one another and loses that humanity. Sure. I think there's a, there's a few answers there, and, I'll, and I, let me try three of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, the okay. First, the first is that Adobe is a group of uh, about 13,000 humans in an, a system, in an organizational system. And I do not think it's possible for any group uh, that large to not exhibit a lot of these behaviors. Right. I, I just, I've not, I've not seen it really anywhere. Uh, I'm personally, I'm uncomfortable with any group that's larger than 40 or 50 people. I just think it's, I mean, uh, there's probably a reason that villages and tribes were that size and there's somebody could quote Dunbar's number and all of that stuff. Um, I, I just think that again, psychologically, we can't cope with anything much bigger than a group about that big. We can't keep track of all the relationships. So you start to put layers and layers of process on it. And I work with companies all the time that are growing past that 40, 50, 60 person size and are going to be 120 in, in, you know, next year as the company grows and what do we do? And you start to reinvent and you'd start to bring process in place. And if you do that at the scale of a company like Adobe, uh, over the three decades that they have been a company, I think to some degree, uh, it is inevitable that kind of stuff happens. I've, I don't have a lot of experience with other companies of that scale. Uh, I mean, I worked at Google, which was very large, but it was also very young at the same time. And it was going through, like I said, massive, massive growth. Um, Adobe sort of institutionalized being that size over 30 years. And I think most companies of that size and age would exhibit a lot of that behavior. The other thing to realize is that the the company is organized uh, around a set of discrete products, and I'm not quite sure how you would organize it any other way. It is, is, I guess I'm saying it's part of a function of what the products are like, in that they are desktop, standalone products that interact a little bit with one another. But like famously, Adobe's products have inconsistent user experiences for very similar functions. Uh, each one of the teams would say, well, we know illustrators better than photographers. And so that's why the color palette in Illustrator is this way. And the, the Photoshop team would say, well, that's, that's fine for illustrators, but that's not how photographers work. So that's why the color palette is this way. And I think, I think these, um, I wouldn't call them really fiefdoms because they are relatively unified in the organization. Right. But I think overall, y- you can't help but be structured any other way. Right, be- because of uh, of how that happens, and that creates this tremendous amount of necessary communication that goes far beyond uh, what anybody could imagine. And and that communication happens again in, what the, in like getting together for meetings and lots and lots of emails going around and stuff like that. And then the third thing I would say is that uh, about ten years ago, honestly, Adobe became an enterprise software company, and and I think that's a, a little bit at the core what they are. And so that just shifts a set of priorities. It shifts a set of uh, uh, shifts the way that the company communicates uh, externally, does its marketing, and things like that. And I think you put those all those things together, and you get a company that you would assume would be very product focused and very design driven by the nature of their audience, but in fact is run much more, you know, by MBAs with spreadsheets in a overarching bureaucracy uh, that is inevitable at its size. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially that last point, because I think because 
they are so associated with design. I think that creates a different expectation. And that's that's probably it. So if you're going in and, and dealing with, um, you know, Oracle, you say, oh, I, I'd, I'd expect all of this from Oracle. But, you know, Adobe is the thing that people in black turtlenecks use to make, you know, pretty things for each other. So it's also giant analytics and and ad serving and tracking yeah. and all of that kind of stuff on the other half of the business that frankly most designers don't know or frankly care that much about right like there are there are if you look at the earnings reports fully half of their revenue comes on the enterprise side the, wow. uh, what do they call that the um marketing cloud side of things um, and then there's the whole entire line of business around Acrobat and, you know, document management and all that kind of stuff. So it is a very, you know, it is, it is not just a pro just a company for, uh, design tools. So, um, but anyway, yeah. So trying to practice the kind of culture that we had developed at Typekit in a, um, environment like Adobe was challenging, but ultimately pretty successful, um, made a lot of change and got an awful lot done driving that, that same kind of process, uh, right through the, the shift over to creative cloud. It was, it was really interesting. It was really hard, but it was also super interesting to do. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I bet that happened because of, of your and the rest of your team's very concerted effort you know to get up every day and say we're going to preserve this set of practices because we know that this is how we get quality yeah and we used a whole series of trojan horses to do that so, <laughs> you know i mean it was for example typekit was the first team to use github inside of adobe Wow. Because, you know, six, yeah. six years ago or something. No, no, no. It was four, four or five years ago. So Adobe was a little bit late. But at the same time, they didn't have a lot of hosted services. Uh, they had big, giant, binary desktop applications. So us coming in to a place like Adobe uh, and saying, like, the, the, the culture of our organization is built around this sort of almost open source-like contribution model that GitHub embodies. Like, our culture is embodied in this tool. We kind of have to use it to be able to successfully and continuously build our product. Um, that required a whole bunch of change inside that organization, change that was then propagated out across, you know, many, many, many more teams. So it's stuff like that, that all boiled down to, you know, how do we do the work uh, as we sit around the table here? So... But yeah, I could probably go on and on. I, should, I, I probably should sometime do, do a talk on all of this or something. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, it's it's so it's so fascinating because company like organizations, especially large organizations that have existed for decades, talk about how do we innovate, and they they always focus on tools or new technologies, and it's like you innovate to the extent that you can have an honest conversation about where you are and what you offer and how everybody's working together. You know, what, what I find amazing, and this is just maybe generational or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, no. And I, and I mean like from years past is that this idea of collaborating with one another is, is relatively is growing is newish and growing right so in this in this article they quote a harvard business uh, review article from last month that said time spent by managers and employees in collaborative activities has ballooned by 50 percent over the last two decades so like 
what we do, what we take for granted, like us being in Slack, us having a stand-up, us, you know, doing all these sorts of very collaborative things to build the product together, seems like, like, our, did our parents not do any of that kind of stuff? Obviously not with the same kind of technological advances that we have to be able to do our work distributedly, but did everybody just like keep their heads down and sit at their desks and do work? I, I mean, I, I guess they did because that's when people had offices with doors, with which just seems like insanity to me today. I mean, I know there's open plan issues, but but yeah, what yeah. do you do? I think we're working on things of such that are moving so quickly and of such complexity that the the idea that one person could go off by themselves and and do something you know useful. <laughs> Is right. it? It really seems unlikely. I mean, we have a we have a lot of you know we have a lot of oral culture here at Mule. But one of the things that we try to uh, adhere to is the idea that we uh, we design together and document alone. That's something we talk about. Is like the design isn't what happens when you're at your desk. The design happens when we're working together to solve a problem. And then we say, okay, well, how do we document the solution? Is it something that somebody's got to go off and code? Is it something that somebody's going to go off and do a thing in Illustrator or make a diagram or make a spreadsheet, right? Because people really focus on the documentation. They focus on the deliverable. And we try to move the conversation to focusing on the decision. And you want the decisions to be made with all the good brains in a room together. In a room together, yeah. And then it's like, oh, then go make something that documents our our thinking. But the thinking doesn't happen by yourself in front right. of a screen. The thinking happens when we're all together, and you have that energy, and you have that exchange of ideas, and you have that critique. And I think moving that, and I mean, this is the, it's a whole separate conversation about how things are like scoped and dealt with and all of that. But just moving the idea of design from the artifact to the decisions that go into it, I think could have huge implications for just the getting more things done better and faster. No, I'll tell you what, I can honestly say that is my favorite part of work entirely. Like it's the, the most, that is when I'm having the most fun. Four or five people, all with a lot of trust, all very talented, in a room together, we're going to solve this problem. We're not going to leave this room until this problem is solved and just filling up whiteboards and doing all the work. And then various people in that room the in, who are individual contributors can go like do the backend architecture, draw the design, um, uh, figure out the animations between states, like all of those different things. Right. But, um, but again, you're right. That's just essentially documenting it. I mean, they're going to work out more details. They may get stuck. We might come back into the room, but, but it's in the room live, this, this, uh, collaboration that, um, that, that's just the best. That's just magic. That's yeah. the clue. That's, that's where I get into flow. That's where mm -hmm. I'm like, how is it six o'clock? Like, how did that happen? You know, exactly. That kind of and that's when you know the, the work, that's when your team's really working. If you want to spend time with them, working with them, that's when you know that you're in a culture with a set of processes that's supporting that. And you're just, you're getting so much more done and it feels fun and it feels easy. Like being, I think, I think we still have the sense probably again, related to our, our terrible um, public education, uh, that if... <laughs> If you're by yourself banging your head against an assignment, like up really late at night, that's what being productive, that's what work is. And if you're having a good time and joking and laughing while you're getting things done, well, you're not being productive. 
And I think the opposite is true. I think if you're having a good time with people you really trust uh, who are all contributing equally, you're being as productive as possible. And, and you'll, yep. you'll just solve, you'll be more you know, creative and you'll solve things in a more interesting way and you'll have a great time doing it and you'll, you know, you'll move quicker and all those good things. Yep. Yep. I agree. It's much more like play than work at that point, I think. But man, it's hard to get that situation, you know, to like to be able to replicate that over and over again, just to get all the variables right so that it aligns and you can do that kind of stuff. But I guess that's what we've been talking about. Yeah, so. it's hard. And I think admitting, admitting that that situation does not occur naturally is the first step. If you say it will take work to get teams to function this way, and it's, it's not it's not science. It's not an equation. It's not a set of, of things that, that if you do these things, you'll collaborate and have a great time. I think admitting that that sort of interaction uh, requires intentional effort is, is the first step to, to people being able to do it more. Well, we, you know, here, here's the thing. We're not taught how to work. We don't come out of school having to work. I gave this talk. <laughs> so funny. I gave this talk a while back uh, to a computer science department at a at a university when I was traveling in Dublin, and uh, and I gave them this this whole talk of, of, about these topics, right? Like how we do great work, how we collaborate, how we trust each other, how it makes better design. And at the end of it, I started talking about meetings and how we did the meetings at Typekit and everything. And I kind of look and they're all looking at me blankly. And I'm like, oh, my God, you've never been to a meeting because you're in school. <laughs> like, you, yeah. I'm like, oh, oh, all right, let me back up. Let me back up. Uh, most people, their jobs, they sit in rooms with other people and they listen to people talk and it's very boring. And they, they probably are looking at Facebook on their laptop. Like, that's a lot of what work is. And yeah. they were like, oh, all right, okay. Uh, and I'm like, it doesn't have to be that way. Remember this when you get out there, that you can, that you can do work together and, you can, and it can be fun. Uh, and, and it may be called a meeting simply because that's the only word we have for it. But anyway, um, uh, this was a great conversation. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for um, taking the time. Where can people find out more about you? You're on the Twitter. I'm on the Twitter. I'm Mule Girl on the Twitter, and that's the that's the best place. Okay. If you want to get in touch with me, that's also the best place. I don't answer email ever. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, um, uh, we could probably do a whole other um, podcast about Slack, yeah. and maybe we will sometime oh, yeah. as an alternative to email. And you got a book. Your book is great. Oh, uh, thank you. Yes, just enough research is is just my book. Research. It is short, and you should read it, and then you should buy it for your boss, and you should buy it for uh, your boss's boss. Because I think that's one of those things that can kind of fundamentally change the way people approach their work. Yes. How they make their products. Good. Thanks. Good show. Thank you. All right. Fantastic. Thank you.